Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 6, The Port Key. Harry felt as though he had barely lain his head down to sleep in Ron's room when he was being shaken awake by Mrs. Weasley. Time to go, Harry dear, she whispered, moving away to wake Ron. Harry felt around for his glasses, put them on, and sat up. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Thank you to everyone who came out to our live show last night. We had such a fabulous time. And thanks to the person who brought us peach pie. That was amazing. (laughs) Casper, we record these episodes a few days ahead of time, but we still want to thank everyone who we know will have come out to the Atlanta live show. Um, We want to thank the person who we know will have brought us peach pie. Two people. (laughs) One each. Yes. Thank you so much to Mari Jones. And Samantha for their peach pies. Ariana, you can just edit in their names later, right? <laughs> and congrats on winning the 30-second recap. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really felt like the room had my back. Yeah. yeah. Vanessa, growing up, I always heard stories from my parents about their travels. My parents had worked on a film in Mali, in West Africa. They'd lived in Brussels, and they'd lived in America for three years. My dad went to business school in Chicago. My mom set up an illegal florist business while she was there by flirting with Dorman, wearing a Dutch-like flower maid's outfit. And so America was this place which still represented kind of excitement and opportunity and was a place to go in your young adulthood. And so as I started thinking about graduate school, I thought about America. And as I read about studying abroad, I came across the Fulbright program, and it seemed to be a very prestigious thing. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to apply for that. So I started getting my paperwork together, and I wrote the essays, and I asked old professors to look at them, and I felt pretty good about my application, sent it off, waited two or three months, and then got the news that I didn't get it. And, you know, like I was kind of disappointed, and the whole vision of what my life would be crashed around it a little bit. You know, I was like, oh, that's not going to be possible. But a month later, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try again. I'm going to get everything lined up. I'm going to do my very best. I'm going to get more people to look at my essays. I'm going to get started earlier. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to take an extra class to signal that, like, I'm still developing. And I sent it in, and I still didn't get in. And I felt like such a failure. I was like, Well, clearly it's not about the application, like they just don't want me. And so for a while I thought, because I didn't get the Fulbright, that I wouldn't come to America, that I wouldn't go to graduate school here. But after some time, I realized that those were two different things, and my brain had conflated them into one, and that actually there were other ways of doing this. So I applied just to the schools directly, and I was lucky enough to get into the schools I was interested in, and and I ended up coming here to Harvard. But I I often wonder if I had let that not being accepted into one thing tar the whole image of what my life here could be, I would never have been here and we would never have met. And I thought about that theme of acceptance in this chapter, especially looking at Amos and Cedric's relationship and the way in which Cedric Diggory's father doesn't really want to 
accept the story that his son is telling. And he's conflating this idea of being a good sportsman with being a good son in ways that I think are troubling and are ways that are are really going to hurt Amos in the end. Casper, there are so many things that I love about your story. And it's already put a completely new spin on why Cedric maybe finds it so frustrating that Amos won't believe his version of the story. Because what Amos is saying is what actually happened isn't good enough. I need you to be a better flyer than Harry. It's about Cedric wanting his father's acceptance for what he actually accomplished and for who he actually is. And that's maybe the reason why Cedric puts his name in the goblet. Yeah, I think it's just so important to ask ourselves what self-acceptance we want, what it means to truly accept somebody else. Um, And how do you know? Like, because so much of the wanting to be accepted by others is about wanting to be accepted by ourselves. Yeah. Casper, do you accept the challenge of doing the 30-second recap first? Bring it on. Okay. On your mark, get set. Go. So in this chapter, we learn a lot about a transport in the Wizarding World, because not only do we have the port key and, and um, Arthur gets up with the younger kids and they walk there and they meet the diggeries and they hold on to the thing and then it transports them and we they've arrived at the World Cup. But um, we also learn about apparating because the older kids are having a lion and Molly's going to wake them and they're going to apparate and you can get splinched if it goes wrong, which is very bad. And um, we learn about that um, um, they got tickets uh, for, through uh, Arthur's work, which seems like a little bit of corruption. I just want to say that. Excellent job. Thanks. It's a very short chapter and very little happens. I mean, you could think that. I think we're going to prove everyone wrong. You ready, Vanessa? I am. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Ron is like, it's hard being awake and going to fancy things. And they have to like walk up a hill. And why is Hermione so out of shape? She's like, I can't (laughs) walk up a hill. And they get to the top and Amos Diggory is like, my son beat Harry. And um, Arthur is like, only the redheaded ones are mine, which is like a weird (laughs) sentence. And then they all touch a boot and they, which seems hard and they go to the World Cup. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, fabulous. So Vanessa, let's dig into this theme of acceptance and start with Amos and Cedric Diggory. You know, it's one thing to celebrate your child's success, but it's another to not even hear their account of what happened. Because Cedric is very clear that Harry fell off his broom because there was a fake Dementor underneath. He says, Harry fell off his broom, Dad. I told you it was an accident. Right. So he's even like signaling to us like, I've said this to you before. Right. Well, I think this is the shadow side of Hufflepuffs. You know, Hufflepuffs are about loyalty and about kindness. But loyalty and kindness can be self-serving as well as a gift. I think the instinct to help people is often about making yourself feel better in a way. And if that has a bigger prominence, right, this is about Amos being proud as a father and having this gallant son who not only is the hero, but then won't even show off about it, right? Like, it's being weaponized in a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he says the best man won, right? right? He's writing this narrative around like the most modest person is also the better competitor. And there has to be a strategic upside to modesty or it doesn't matter for its own sake. Exactly. Yeah. 
This is so striking to me that we're talking about it after last week's episode where we were thinking about the Weasley boys and their relationship with Arthur. You know, I think we have an echo here of that kind of masculinity conversation in in what's happening here with Cedric. You know, we see Cedric's behavior as really quite gallant throughout this book, right? He is seen as being someone who cares about fair play while still being very competitive. And so when he and Harry decide to grab the cup at the same time, making sure that they're equal winners. We see what's really true about Cedric. We see that generosity of spirit and we see that courage and and commitment. And the sad thing is that Amos will never see that. All Amos sees is this storybook version of who he wants his son to be rather than seeing this brilliant young man who Cedric actually is. I think the sign that we get that Amos is not someone who is like either accepted himself or accepted his son is that he just seems to constantly be comparing. He says, oh, the tickets cost about as much as a sack full of galleons. But mind you, looks like I got off easily. Like you have all of these kids. And it's what time did you have to get up? We had to get up at two. You don't have to be a genius to tell who's a better flyer. My kid stayed on the broom and your kid. Like we are with him for a page and he is making three comparisons. Right. It is my least favorite kind of talk of like, well, what parking spot did you find? How long did it take you to get here? What route did you take? Right. How much did you pay for that? Oh, well, I got it for $10 cheaper. People whose identities come down to whether they got a better deal, whether they are a bigger victim, and who can only see themselves in terms of either their quote-unquote success or failure in comparison with someone else. I mean, it's just aggravating to be around, but also I do think it shows a lack of self-acceptance. You can only see yourself in comparison to other people and your entire sense of self vacillates moment to moment. Of like, oh, I was a chump. I paid $10 more for that. Oh, I was a genius. I got that for $5 less. Well, and I think it's frustrating because we do it all the time, right? Like, I I think it's a human condition to be comparing. But the lack of awareness that Amos signifies is that he's turning that into conversation. And I think what we want to be practicing is a little bit of a barrier between that happening and then being like, wait. I'm comparing. Like, comparing is only going to make me feel bad. This is not a helpful strategy. It's only going to make me feel bad or superior, right? Right. Like, either way, it's causing me to rank rather than to, like, feel community with. What I really love about Benjamin Zandler, who's this fabulous conductor of an orchestra here in Boston, where he teaches a class, and the first thing he says to the whole class is, everyone is getting an A. Like, you're all getting an A. Whatever you do in this class, you're getting an A. So that they can let go of this stress about what grade they're going to get and comparing to other people and what is the curve and blah, blah, blah. And just focus on actually learning and loving what they're studying. Which, you know, obviously that has downsides if you're running an academic system. But for one class, I love that as an experiment by saying, you will get an A. Like, what if Amos could wake up and just know that, like, I have a beautiful son who I love and that is enough. Well, I mean, to your point specifically, Yale Medical School does their classes pass-fail because they find that if they don't rank their class, people are more collaborative. And since they have started doing this, they have a higher rate of people passing the boards because people learn how to study together. You know, whereas if you rank a class, like, you're just not going to be helping each other out. Even the system is going to oppress you. And I think Amos is seeing that, right? He's comparing about ticket prices because 
you know, we learned that, like, ticket prices are so staggered that cheaper tickets, not only are your seats not as good at the Quidditch World Cup, but you are forced to travel weeks ahead of time because the Ministry of Magic doesn't want muggles to notice that so many wizards are traveling, so they stagger it. So poorer people have to miss more work, have to make more arrangements for, I'm guessing, dog sitters or, like, gnome sitters or whatever it is, ghoul sitters back home. There's all of these extra layers of, like, oppression in trying to go to the Quidditch World Cup if you can't afford it. So it makes sense to me that, like, people are discussing things like how much did you pay for a ticket? I mean, it's maddening. Whenever I'm on an airplane, I wonder how much the person sitting right next to me paid for their ticket, right? Because the airlines have set up a system by which there's like no fair way to know how much my ticket is actually worth and whether or not I overpaid or if I got a deal or... So yeah, I think that there are systems that exacerbate these problems. Definitely. Which makes me respect the Weasleys all the more because... You know, the way they accept Harry into their family says so much about their comfort with the kids that they've got, right? Like, you can imagine welcoming Harry in and his fame and his ability kind of like crowding out your own kids. And that never is the feeling with the Weasleys. He's welcomed in as one of the family and the family still comes first in a way, right? Like Harry doesn't show up on the clock that Molly has of like where everyone is, right? There's a solidity and a comfort that they have, which makes it all the more comfortable for Harry to be part of that. Imagine the Diggory's welcoming Harry in for like two weeks over the summer holidays. Be maddening. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. 
They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. I, I do want to really pay attention to what do we make of the way that Molly is like deeply not accepting Fred and George. So I don't think that Fred and George should be allowed to take the 10 tongue f- toffees to the Quidditch World Cup. They have not been shown to be like responsible salesmen or like proprietors. They experiment on unsuspecting muggles as we talked about last week. But she is just, like, deeply not accepting these kids. She's like, no wonder you didn't get more OWLs, which is obviously the thing that she really wants. She wants academic success. And then Fred says to her, as she's destroying everything that they've created, we spent six months developing those. Fred shouted at his mother as she threw the toffees away. And I don't know. There is a way to really celebrate your child spending six months on something and perfecting it and, like, having an entrepreneur spirit about it. Not every kid is going to be strong academically. And thank God that would make for a very boring world if like everybody was your beloved Percy and like got a million OWLs. So Molly is also missing a real opportunity to accept her sons. That's true. And, uh, you know, we can imagine that the the love of exam results for her is about a step towards a stable, successful, professional life, right? Like this is a step on the career ladder for her sons, but she's kind of ignorant to the fact that they are developing their career, but it's going to be different than the one she knows. I mean, neither of us are parents, and I can only imagine just the like terror and horror of not feeling in control or able to shape or guide decisions that your children are making that you think are going to hurt them. And, you know, that's why she's angry. And how do you accept that your kid is choosing a path that you don't fully understand and that you think may be a bad one? I don't know, because there are other times when you would want a parent to fight as hard as they could to prevent a child, especially when they're under 18, from making a decision that would really impact their life in a negative way. And I can imagine that that's incredibly difficult to know where that is as a parent. Yeah, I absolutely think that children often need intervention and that it must be maddening. But I just wonder if at some point Molly would calm down enough to have a curious conversation with them and be like, okay, so show me these order forms. And like she could be like very skeptical about it and very concerned and say, these wands, like how are you going to get them approved by the, you know, wizarding equivalent of the FDA? And she's not leaving herself open to the possibility that her children might surprise and impress her. I mean, it's just sad. Like the boys go off without saying goodbye to her Mm. and 
We know. We learn in these books. And I think Molly is keenly aware that your kids can go and not come back. I mean, something terrible happens at the Quidditch World Cup. And I hate that she has let this become such an unwieldy negative thing without seemingly having had a curious conversation, without leaving the possibility open that she could accept this about them. You know, there's an un expected image of acceptance in this chapter, which I think is the port key itself. There's something powerful about this image of, you know, they happen to know each other, but you could imagine strangers standing around an object, just touching it in full faith that this boot or or this, you know, old soda can is going to transform into this magical transport object, like teleporting somehow. I don't know. I think acceptance has so much to do about a little bit of blind faith, like you don't have control, like Molly can't put her foot down, right? Thinking that she's going to take away their orders from the last six months and destroy the order forms isn't going to stop Fred and George from making these products and starting their own business, right? What it's done is damaged the relationship and driven them further apart. Amos's storytelling about Cedric isn't changing what actually happened or what people think of Cedric or Harry. It's only creating a wedge between him and his son. And so... Yeah, acceptance, I think, is just so much about faith and about trust and about pain, actually, because we have to let go of things that we think we know. Yeah, I think it's so important to talk about the pain that comes with acceptance. It's letting go of what you thought would be and accepting what's in front of you. Um, But as your story demonstrated, when you do that, when you accept a rejection or when you accept that somebody isn't who you thought they were, you can start to solve in these beautiful ways and end up in these beautiful places. Yeah, I think we've landed on the key question around acceptance, which is what are the things that we'd be better to accept and what are the things that are something we should keep challenging? And I think figuring out which one of those two, whatever situation you're in, is, like, that's the work of a lifetime. Yeah. So, Casper, this week we are going to transition to Chavruta. Hooray! And as a brief reminder, so Chavruta is based on joint pair studying, which is traditionally done in yeshivas. And so the way that it's done is that it's two people sitting around a Talmud, around a book, and asking each other questions. And the idea is that between the two of us, even though neither of us are experts, but just like with curious, rigorous minds, we can solve it together. And so the way that that's modeled pedagogically is that One of us will ask a question and then offer an answer, and then the conversation will continue from there. So I'll offer a question and answer, and then you will offer a counter question and answer. How does that sound? That sounds really good. I know. It's, like, so fun. Okay. So here is my question. Uh Uh-huh. Why does Cedric know how to use a port key when none of the Weasley kids do? And I'll point to where in the text. Oh. So they all do the port key and Harry and Ron and Hermione are like bumping into each other. And then after they land at the Quidditch World Cup, Harry looked up. Mr. Weasley, Mr. Diggory and Cedric were still standing, though looking very windswept. Everyone else was on the ground. So Cedric like knows how to travel by port key and none of the Weasley kids or Harry or Hermione do. So my question is why? And my answer is that this is the upside 
of being an only a child and is the upside of being a child of a parent who's like big on appearances. I feel like Amos was like running drills at home <laughs> and was like, this is how you try. Right. Like because port keys are not common. I don't think that Cedric has like vacationed a lot and used a port key. I believe that this seems to be Cedric's first time using a port key. But I feel like Amos and Cedric have been like practicing this for days. Whereas Mr. Weasley is like, uh, eh, the kids will fall, but like he's not going to be obsessively preparing for it. I feel like this is just like comes down to sort of maybe traveling styles, right? Like there are people who arrive in a city and don't have any reservations and are like fine with that. And there are other people who have like very strict itineraries and everything is planned for and everything is prepaid. And then there's like somewhere in the middle. And I think that we are seeing like these two very different parenting styles of Amos Diggory and Mr. Weasley. You know what, Vanessa? Maybe Cedric is just more skillful with his body. Maybe he is a better Quidditch player than Harry. Like, I mean, he's very good and maybe he just lands really well, right? He's perfected that kind of squat landing or something. Good core strength. Exactly. Like, he's a year older. He's a little stronger. Maybe he's just able to make the landing better because he's better physically. Because Cedric obviously is very skilled. He would have been chosen as the Hogwarts representative for the Goblet of Fire. Of all the students. Right. And Harry would not have. So he is a better athlete than Harry. He's And he's a better athlete than Fred George. He is the best athlete at Hogwarts. So, yeah, it's possible that he's just one of those, like, slick people who's like, oh, I've never gone on a hike before. Did I accidentally beat you all to the peak? Uh. Right. Oh, gymnastics? I did a little bit. Boom. Here's a trip assalto and a, you know, handstand ending or something. Yeah. So, okay, let me ask you a question. If he is the best athlete that Hogwarts has to offer, the Triwizard Tournament is not just about physical skill. There's problem solving. There's all sorts of other things. Is Cedric actually the best all-around student? Like, is he the brightest student at the school, even though he's not even a seventh year? Yeah, and in which case, I mean, we hear what it's like to be transported by a port key. Harry feels as though a hook just under um, his navel had suddenly been jerked irresistibly forward. His feet leave the ground. He can feel Ron and Hermione on either side of him. And there's a howl of wind and the swirling of color. And I wonder if Cedric during that time is like treating this as like solving a puzzle. He's like, okay, so how are we going to land? Rather than like being so overwhelmed, if he is this like top all around student, I think it's incredibly possible that he's just like a better problem solver and that this is a moment in which we are seeing like this is what a real Triwizard Tournament champion should look like, right? He should be modest and he should be somebody who can like solve a port key quickly and land on his feet and look good while doing it and right like he's sort of the John F. Kennedy of Hogwarts. (laughs) I mean all of this is making me think how much potential there was for Harry and Cedric to have a friendship because they are both set apart from the rest of the school because of their excellence or their fame and you know I think we their interest in Cho Chang their interest in Cho Chang exactly But, you know, I think not only set apart from the school, but set apart from their family. Obviously, Harry has lost his parents, but Cedric has this distance with at least his father as well because of the projection that Amos is giving on him. So 
you know, I think there's something you, you read about this, whether people suddenly have a lot of money or they suddenly have a lot of fame. It's very easy to feel distanced from the people you should feel closest to. And maybe we all experience that in, in small ways, right? Like, if you're in school and suddenly you do really well on a test, your friends look at you differently. Or maybe you suddenly are in a relationship and your other friends look at you differently because of the person that you're with. And, you know, I think that there's the deeper question maybe in this Havruta is about how do we get put aside from people that we love through projection and through how we think of ourselves and that that can have really damaging consequences in the end. Or the thing that I'm really pulling from this Havruta is how when I judge somebody as having the upper hand from me, it's a story that I'm telling based on my experience, and that does not make the story true. It is equally as likely that, like, Amos Rand drills with him as, like, Cedric is just, like, has good core strength or good problem-solving abilities or all of these options are equally valid in that we don't know the answers for ourselves about ourselves. Like, Cedric probably couldn't tell you why he was so good at landing, right? Like, Often if you have a natural ability to do something and then someone asks you how you did it, you're like, I don't know. I just put my foot there. But, they, you know, I feel like I constantly will judge someone being like, oh, look at the swagger that they did X, Y, and Z with. And, like, you never know why someone is doing something. And when we judge each other, it's almost always in vain. The final thing I would say, Vanessa, on this question is that Yes, Cedric may be the best that Hogwarts has, right? He's the champion. He's everything you could want to be as a teenage boy. And yet, in the moment when he touches the cup with Harry and they're both transported to be in front of Voldemort, all that success and notoriety and, and skill means nothing. Because Voldemort says, kill the spare, and Cedric dies. The vanities of fame and success can mean so little. And also just skills are so contextual. Yeah. And that that's okay. It's like even when we're like shiny, I think it's important to remember, right, there are other situations where we will be humble and brought to our knees. And then there will be other situations where like we will be the only one who can help. This week's voicemail is from Lena Wersky. Hi, guys. My name is Lena. I'm 11 years old, and I just listened to your second podcast of book two, which was Dobby's Warning through the theme of control. And I realized something while you guys were doing your Lectio Divina that I don't know if you guys saw, and I just wanted to share it with you. So it's something that connects from your passage, which was about Harry and his dreams being quote-unquote goggled at through a bars in a cage at a zoo. And that connects to chapter six in the Sorcerer's Stone, which is the journey from platform nine and three quarters. You guys connected it from Harry to the snake. And I realized something from Harry, uh, Harry and Ginny connection, which was uh, when Fred and George tell the Weasleys that they saw Harry on the train. Ginny says, Mom, can I go see him, please? And Mrs. Weasley actually says almost exactly the quote from your Lectio Divina, which was, You've already seen him, Ginny, and besides, the poor boy isn't something you goggle at in a zoo. So I kind of felt like it was an alternative alternative thing between Mrs. Weasley's view on it and Harry's view on it, because in Harry's dreams, he is being goggled at in a zoo, sort of, and... 
he feels like it's just this place that he can he's secluded and mrs weasley on the other hand feels that harry sh- that shouldn't be happening to harry just because he's famous and he should just be treated like any other random person so i just wanted to hear your thoughts on this i'm glad you listened thanks bye Lena. Lena is one of my favorite names because Lena Horn is amazing. So I hope that that is why your parents named you that. Lena, thank you so much for that voicemail. And you're right. I hadn't made that connection before. That's so interesting. And I, I love that it kind of shows us that, you know, we can protect each other even when we don't yet know each other. Like Mrs. Weasley hasn't had time with Harry yet. And she already has this sense of what he might need in this moment and and how we should treat him as he enters the the wizarding world so i hope you're well thanks for listening to the show and thanks for sending us your voicemail vanessa it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter and it's a short chapter so i'm curious to see who you give your blessing to today i would like to bless molly weasley because I just think she's probably really sad today. Like, she kissed her husband, you know, on the cheek goodbye, and she's busy. It's not like she has time to be home wallowing. Three of her sons are still home. Then she has to go shopping for a million children. But I don't know. Fred and George left without saying goodbye, and she's, like, she's in a fight with two of her kids. And I can't imagine that she is proud of her parenting choices. And so I just want to offer a blessing to anyone who's like in an icky spot with someone who they love. Fred and George, even though they're upset with her right now, if they needed her, they would go back in a second. And they do not doubt her love for them. I would just like to offer a blessing for anyone who's in a hard moment with someone they love and to trust that we all still know that we care about each other even when we are loving imperfectly. So what about you, Casper? I want to bless Hermione. Who? (laughs) I believe you've heard of her, Mm. Hermione Granger. You know, we know that she really struggles walking up this hill. Then she has to take this porky, like this old dirty boot, and then she falls on the ground when she lands. And all I can imagine is Hermione being like, listen, people, we in this country have airplanes and trains and buses, and like there are systems to get people from one place to another that make sense. She's having to endure bureaucratic decisions that are impacting her life in so many frustrating ways that she could just, like, figure out. Anyone who's having to navigate systems that don't make sense for your specific situation, I give this blessing to you and Hermione. And she's, like, not complaining. Right. She's so gracious about it, which I definitely am not always. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We would like to offer one last big thank you to Mari Jones and Samantha for the amazing peach pies that they brought us. If you follow us on Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, or the Twitter, you can see pictures of it, Casper. Leave us a review on iTunes and please send us a two-minute voicemail. We love getting them. We've also uploaded the first episode of Book One on YouTube. So if you search for Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, you can share that with friends and family if you think they might be interested in the podcast. Next week, we'll read Bagman and Crouch through the theme of beauty. This episode is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Terkyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. 
This week's voicemail is from Lena Wersky. Our social media manager is Harshi Hetege. And thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Ludley and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Yeah, it's like I talk to myself like this. So it's like, all right, so the Battle of Waterloo was 1815. Napoleon was coming up from the south. Yeah, she's pet from next door. Oh, yeah, she works. But she does your hair. Yeah, she, oh, you know her. Yeah, she does your mum's hair. Yeah. yeah, she's fat. She's great. She's great. Love her. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I only listen to the Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.